Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Sweta and today I'm joined by Anuk Arud Prakasam, author of the novel A Passage North. In the novel, a young, privileged Tamil man in contemporary post-war Sri Lanka takes a train journey from the capital, Colombo, to Jaffna in the north to attend the funeral of his grandmother's caretaker. But the journey of the title is equally the journeys he undertakes to the deepest recesses of his mind and to the past and the future. An intense thread of longing runs through the novel, the nature of his people's longing that must have led to the events that led to the devastating war, his own longing for the non-existent Tamil homeland of his imagination, the caretaker's impossible longing for the impossible return of her sons dead in the war, his own longing for his estranged romantic partner, among others. Delighted to be joined by Anouk today. Anouk is trained in philosophy and received his doctorate from Columbia University. A Passage North is his second novel. Thank you so much for joining us, Anouk. Thanks for having me, Sweta. From the kind of writing that you do, it would seem that um, like the impulse that drew you to philosophy, um, is, that a, is, is it a same version of that impulse that draws you to fiction? And what do, what do you see about the types of philosophical explorations that uh, literary fiction permits that academia or even perhaps literary non-fiction doesn't allow? Um, that's, a, that's a really good question. And it's a kind of complicated question. I guess, yes, I would say that the same impulse that drew me to philosophy when I was younger drew me to um, literature as I began to read literature, which I really didn't begin to do until I was already kind of well immersed into in, in philosophy. I was interested in philosophy, I think, in the same way that a lot of people were in, are interested in philosophy uh, when they're young, or at least um, in the philosophical impulse when they're young. Um, a sense of the world being vaster than, uh, than, uh, than you know, a sense of uh, things being larger, a sense of wonder, a sense of... Uh, not knowing and a desire to maybe, uh, yeah, come to some kind of clarity, to come to some kind of relation to that, um, uh, to all the unknown aspects of the world. And and this was really why I, I began to, to read philosophy when I was young. I think it was out of a desire to understand, to kind of um, hold the world still. I uh, I liked about philosophy the fact that it was so abstract and it was a way to um, kind of separate you uh, from your environment. When you read philosophy, when you read um, about life at that level of abstraction, it removes you from your um, more immediate physical environments. And I think when I was younger, that was also something that I, that I wanted. I was, um, I guess, like many young people, unhappy with my immediate environment, with my um, 
with my life uh, or the life that I had been uh, given. And so, and so I really enjoyed that sense of distance. But when I began to study philosophy at university, um, I slowly began to get the sense that philosophy as it's practiced now in the university system, in the, in the American and British and uh, in generally in the Anglophone uh, world is uh, very different from, uh, from uh, I guess, the kind of philosophy or the kind of philosophical impulse that I was most interested in. Uh, Anglophone philosophy, philosophy as it's practiced in, in America and the, and the UK, is uh, is very analytical. It focuses on um, uh, on uh, how do I say? It focuses a lot on uh, our use of language and understanding our use of language in rigorous and precise ways. And um, there's something very, to me, something that felt limiting about this kind of approach to 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 philosophy. There's a there's a kind of emphasis on rigor, on precision. On um, on clarity that sacrificed uh, the ability to talk about subjects that were less easily uh, made explicit or less easily uh, uh, stated in in simple sentences, and so it was these kinds of moods or these kinds of more inarticulate, more more difficult to articulate states that I that I was interested in, and. Around the time I was twenty or twenty-one, I uh, I read a book called *The Man Without Qualities* by an Austrian novelist called Robert Musil, who had actually studied uh, philosophy at some length himself. Who had actually, I think, trained and and got a doctorate in philosophy. And um, he wrote novels, but his novels were um, or his 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 fiction was really. Um, Essayistic. It was very digressive. It would involve a situation, a world, and characters, and people with uh, desires and difficulties, and so on. But a lot of the actual substance of the text was kind of these essayistic discussions about uh, phenomena that come up in this situation. And and so I saw in that novel the possibility of of thinking philosophically or writing philosophically. In a more concrete way, uh, in a way that was related to to um, to everyday life, uh, the kind of life from which the philosophical impulse actually arises, because when we're young, we don't ask philosophical questions because we've read them in books. We we ask them because uh, we're kind of moved to ask them because there's something that we we don't understand, even though we sense that that something is there. And so I think, yeah, I think it was. I think it was after reading this book that I felt that the novel had space for the kind of philosophical thinking that I wanted to do. That um, at least contemporary academic philosophy did not. Right, it's almost a kind of uh, showing of those uh, philosophical truths and allowing them to become self-evident in fiction, as opposed to, uh, you know, simply stating them. Uh, well, I, you know, I actually wouldn't say it's a matter of um, showing rather than telling. Um, because uh, I mean, this distinction between showing and telling is a distinction uh, you often hear among, uh, I guess, uh, I guess, uh, creative writing teachers. I guess it's one of the dictums of uh, of American creative writing um, that wherever possible, you should try to um, elicit or describe a situation and uh, and therefore elicit a kind of mood or a state of mind rather than simply stating that this person feels this way. 
and that's not necessarily um uh, a dictum that i that i uh, hold to uh, for example muzil would often spend a lot of time saying things rather than rather than showing them but uh, i think that the power of his work uh, or the the chat was that the things that he says the philosophical discussions and the digressions um have this charge acquire this charge or acquire this power that um that they would not have if they were not placed in a kind of more more uh, concrete context so it's not that there is uh, all showing and no saying uh in fact this so called saying is a big part of i guess uh what i think of as philosophical philosophical thinking or philosophical writing but it's about uh, contextualizing it in the body um in in a society in an interaction a situation a history a culture um so that it it acquires this kind of um uh this kind of emotional charge that it doesn't have when when it's just philosophical uh, theorizing or, or or statement right yeah thanks for thanks for clarifying that that's that's helpful um so yeah i was um, wondering if you saw a distinction between uh, you know the kind of uh, explorations permitted by literary fiction versus non fiction yeah i you know i do and um it is a common uh, i mean it, it, it this there is a generic distinction a distinction in genre or at least in 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 publishing categories between fiction and non fiction and um i've heard many writers in the recent past uh, uh, try to to um i guess uh, deconstruct this distinction or to suggest that it uh, is not uh, actually useful in understanding uh in understanding writing or prose or literature um that many of the strategies that are found in fiction can be found in non-fiction and that it's and that non-fiction itself involves a certain amount of fictionalizing um and therefore that uh that there is something i guess uh, uh something simplistic or reductive in in distinguishing sharply between the two but for me i i guess i do i do uh, maintain such a distinction and for me it has to do with um uh the level of identification between an author and a text or rather between an author and a narrator the um narrator of a of a non-fiction non-fiction text text is identifiable with the author right so so the statements made by the eye of the non-fiction text uh is 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 something we hold the author of the text to if the if the statement is false or wrong or uh, malicious or whatever we 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 can hold the author accountable but in in non-fiction in sorry in fiction there is this uh it's a principle of good reading that we that we don't make this uh, inference from a narrator saying something or a narrator feeling something or experiencing something to the authors having uh, felt it or believed it or experienced it uh, and to me so so there's there's this fundamental this to me that they kind of different speech acts in the way that asking a question is different from making a command um or berating somebody is different from caressing them there are um there are two different kinds of speech act uh, and the difference has to do with 
the fact that in one you can make an inference to what the author is like and in the other you cannot um, or you're not supposed to. Um, and for me, I think that that distinction is meaningful also because I don't feel comfortable um, revealing myself. I don't feel comfortable um, sharing myself. I like a veil between me and my audience and the fact that in in not in fiction you cannot make this inference from from narrator to author um, creates this distance for me, this useful distance that allows me to talk, that allows me to say what I want to say without also at the same time making myself uh, overly vulnerable or exposing myself to an audience that I don't know. Uh, and as I was saying, with nonfiction you can't do this. In nonfiction, it's legitimate to make this inference from from text to author, uh, and therefore there is this kind of exposure that. At least in the English language, I, I, I try to avoid because I, I don't want to expose myself to to people I don't know. And in the English language, uh, one really doesn't know anything about one's audience. One's audience can be from any place uh, and have any view and any history and any uh, and be part of any kind of community or culture. One has, has no idea. And I, I don't like the idea of, of revealing myself to this kind of uh, to this kind of uh, stranger who could be anybody right um another aspect that perhaps kind of uh, you know people say distinguishes between fiction and non-fiction is like the the fidelity owed to historical truth so i mean wanted to delve a little bit about uh how you dealt with that so you know in your first book which was kind of completely agnostic to geographical historical context you know that there was scarcely a mention um, of uh, of historical fact in the passage north however there are you know quite a few overt references to rebel groups to specific people events uh, how did you deal with uh, i mean how did you think about the fidelity owed to historical truth did you find um, uh, I mean, in both both the novels, and like, did you find were there moments of like historical truth kind of impinging upon the autonomy of the character or the event that exists within the local imagination of your your novel? Hmm. Well, I guess there are many uh, there are many uh, uh, senses in which there are many senses of fidelity, right? There are many senses in which a text uh, might be uh, loyal to the world or the way the world is. Um, and of course, on some level, every text has to be loyal to at least some dimension of the world or else uh, it lacks relevance to us as readers. But um, so, I could, I, when it comes to representing things and saying this is what it was like to be here or this is what it might have been like to have been here, um, I... I suppose there is this question of, I guess, fidelity. Um, in that sense, my first novel, uh, I did try to be faithful to to many of the, I guess, facts or details that I that I knew to be the case in the situation that I was describing the the end of the war in uh, northeast Sri Lanka, two thousand eight and two thousand nine. Um, but with my second novel. Um, the question of, I guess, faithfulness to the world did not come up in so directly a way, precisely uh, simply because I was um, that that text is located much more in the mind of the main character and in the thoughts of the main character. Um, the external world is much less present in my second novel, A Passage North, 
than it is in my first novel. And therefore, um, therefore, um, the faithfulness has to be faithfulness of the faithfulness in, in question is the faithfulness of, I, I guess, the, um, uh, the, the character to the situation in which the character was placed or into the world that the character was placed. But again, there was much more um, room. Uh, there's much more freedom in this respect than in my first novel because the external world of this character, his life, uh, his world is much less uh, specified in my in my second novel. Um, but in my second novel, again, yes, I mean, in a sense, the facts, the situations that he that he thinks about, at least the historical situations that he thinks about, because both texts are in fact fictional, right? The characters did not exist. Um, as they are described in the real world. Yeah, uh, that sounds like, like all these historical descriptions were kind of mediated through Krishan's thoughts, like whether it was Kotimani's death or like these digressions into the life of the Buddha, which the fact that they're mediated through his thoughts almost feels like a relaxation of the burden of uh, historical accuracy. Um, yeah, or at least a complication of that burden because, uh, no, I think that's, yeah, that's that's very true. Um because if um, in my first novel, the character was walking through a camp that is being bombed by the government in northeast Sri Lanka in early 2009, then um, the way the bombs fall, the way that the bunkers are built, uh, the way operations are conducted by uh, the doctors and nurses at the hospital, um, these are not these are not necessarily presented as 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 things that the, the protagonist is um, as they are presented as as things that the, the the protagonist is perceiving, but they are also very much presented directly. Um, the reader sees the camp directly, and in that sense, the reader doesn't see Kutimani directly. The, the 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 readers in my second novel, the readers' um, perception of the world that. Krishan is in is very much more mediated through his thoughts and feelings. But again, yeah, I did feel uh, with my first novel that I needed to, um, I needed to, for example, the the, geog- the geography of the camps, the um, the uh, the progress of the government forces against the the Tamil Tiger forces, um, the kinds of bombs that were being used, the sounds that they made. Uh, all of these, I wanted them to be accurate. I wanted them to be right. I wanted the fiction to be in the context of, um, I wanted the context in which the fiction is taking place to be to be true as as true as possible to the to the situation. Um, and again, in my second novel, there's no situation as such. There's a funeral that the main character is traveling to, but everything that is described is is in his mind as he as he's as he's going as he's going to the funeral. I don't know if that was actually an, an answer to your question. And, uh, move on to a few things about the book itself. So yeah, through the through through the whole novel there's this thread of lack and emptiness and longing running through the book, right? So um um I mean uh, having read the, both the first and the second book, it it seemed to it seemed to run through both the books, just different, you know, just uh, took different forms in the two, right? So, in uh, Dinesh's case, um, where uh, you know the end of the project for a separate state and the utter trauma of devastation and like the uh, just the total annihilation of possibility, right? That um, 
he has no other choice but to uh, like inhabit the immediacy of the present and uh, the, the, all the emptiness that is is focused on the immediacy of the present it seemed like mm-hmm. and uh, in the second it seems to take like uh, where you've mentioned before take the form of distances like four years into the past or the future mm-hmm. so yeah. i was wondering how you saw the nature of Mm. Um, you know, emptiness or longing in the first novel, different to the second. That's a really good question, um, and I haven't thought of it. But if there is, I mean, there are two different kinds of emptiness because in if if we can say that the character of the first novel, Dinesh, um, who is in who is in the midst of of this um, of this genocide, is um, has an emptiness, I would say that's the emptiness. This this is the emptiness of of trauma. This is the this is the emptying out of the self that results from from uh, from being uh, exposed to extreme violence. the The main character at the beginning of the book um, is totally alienated from from his uh, from his family, from his home, from uh, his language. Nobody talks in the camp, or nobody talks in the way people used to talk. He's he's alienated, ultimately, um, also from his body, which uh, you know, from seeing all of these dead bodies around him, these body parts, from seeing the body subjected, the bodies of the people around him subjected to such extreme violence. He himself has become uh, cut off from his body. He's cut off from all of these things, and in that sense, he's kind of uh, he's kind of a shell of a person. So the emptiness is the is a kind of uh, it's not an emptiness that results from. It's not an emptiness that we think of in terms of oh, what can fill this emptiness or what can fulfill this emptiness. Uh, it's an emptiness that results from taking what is there and removing it from extinguishing it from a kind of extinction of the contents of the self. Uh, whereas with the second novel, we're dealing with um, with a privileged, uh, educated, upper middle class or middle class man in Colombo, a young man, a young Tamil man, who is who is not himself immediately sub- subject to the to the horrors of the war because he grew up in Colombo, and therefore the emptiness that he feels is a much more um, uh, I don't know whether I'd call it a future oriented emptiness insofar as Part of the part of the question of the book is the question of is there a future or how could we understand a future after this? Uh, but it's an emptiness that is asking to be filled. It's not an emptiness that's created out of violence, if that makes sense. Right, right. So, um, in the in the second book, like I thought, emptiness it it seemed to kind of creep in into really innocuous moments as well. So you know, regardless of whether a specific want was fulfilled or not right so for example there's this you know when uh, krishan is coming back home after that night of revelry and he's trying to stave off feelings of emptiness that was one kind of emptiness and then there's the uh, where you um, evoke the megaduta the uh, yaksha eventually getting to the desired destination and and then finding that there's really perhaps the emptiness of there being nothing, you know, no message to convey. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, how do you... Uh, I, I was just curious how, how you would, like, categorize the different types of emptiness. Um, mm, yeah, it's another good question. I mean, each of these characters, I mean, 
I use the word absence in the book, right? Um, but uh, each of these characters uh, has a different, feels a different kind of absence. Uh, Krishan feels the absence of a future. Krishan feels the absence of uh, of a world that would um, that can flourish or that would fulfill the people who live in it. Uh, a world that has been destroyed by the war. Um, so he feels this kind of longing for such a for such a world. Whereas his grandmother, her, the the absence she has is the absence of simply the the world as she knows it, and she's being removed from the world uh, as she ages, as she withdraws physically, as she um, loses her perception and loses her mobility. So she also has a certain kind of emptiness, but it's not it's not a future oriented. Uh, emptiness it's a kind of emptiness that is um that has to do with the present the present is being taken away from her the same present that for example krishan uh, is not satisfied by that krishan is trying to escape from um and for example rani uh, who is appama's caretaker who is the grandmother's caretaker she seeks the world that existed in the past she seeks the world that contained her two sons uh, both of whom died during the during the end of the war. She also feels a kind of absence. Hers is is a closer to a kind of traumatic absence, closer to the kind of absence that Dinesh feels in the in the in the first book. But yeah, in a way, the book is a kind of study of different kinds of absence, so as you say, different kinds of emptiness and different and the different kinds of longing that result from them. So you also make the distinction between desire and longing in the book, desire sort of being object-oriented while yearning is a more generalized condition of longing in the abstract. And mm-hmm. my question was about when desire you know, turn, turns into yearning and how you see that. Uh, for instance, there are a couple of instances at least, one being where Krishan in moments of desperate longing for his estranged uh, romantic partner, Anjum, uh, turns to the Shiva Puranam, mm. this ancient Tamil hymn that speaks about having to endure uh, earthly desires while all the while yearning to give up earthly life and attain Lord Shiva. Uh, I saw that as kind of sublimation of uh, you know desire into yearning. Mm. And um, uh, another is the you know when Krishan tries to rationalize the growing distance between Anjum and, and uh, himself yeah. in terms of Anjum's otherworldly yearning. You know the sense that uh, he so vividly senses that. Uh, what she's seeking can only be fulfilled through something else, and it's it's uh, it's this otherworldly longing. So yeah, uh, how do you see desire having to turn into yearning? Yeah, that's a really good um, that's a really good question. Um, and yeah, I don't think that there is uh, again um, um, in this case, I don't think there is a sharp distinction to be made between uh, yearning and desire in terms of the the objects that they're directed to, right? Because I have there in the text uh, said that yearning is what desire becomes when the object of desire vanishes, when there is no object. But we we are familiar with the objects of our desire in, in varying degrees. For example, uh, uh, we might be in love with somebody who is close to us and who is in our life. Uh, or is a friend or a colleague or something like this. And in this case, the object of desire can be um, very specific. 
Um, whereas we could also desire something, a person that, for example, that we, we, we know very little about. Maybe we've seen them, uh, but we haven't talked to them. And in this case, the object of desire would be less specified, less specific. And in that sense, it would be closer to a kind of yearning. For example, Krishan at one point concretely desires Anjum in the sense that uh, that he has seen her and that he has engaged with her. And to, in this sense, uh, he's familiar with her. Um, but when the book is taking place, when four years after the end of the relationship, he realizes he hardly knows Anjum anymore. He wonders how she might have changed. She knows that she's not the kind of person who stays the same and at that point four years on from having seen this person having no idea where she is or how she lives um, the object of his desire is much closer to a kind of yearning right because the object has lost specificity over time as as over the course of their separation so it's not um, it's not it's not um, the object can become more specific it can become uh, more concrete and more uh, more more concretely specifiable or it can kind of lose uh, substance it can dissipate or evaporate and for me this was kind of uh, part of the beauty of this uh, of this uh, megaduta of the of the cloud messenger right thanks 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 for that that answer um, so like you said the central question of uh, the novel is whether there is a future right so i was wondering how you see the like the place for yearning or longing and desire, what is the place for them in what constitutes a flourishing human life? Right? You know, there's one a notion of desirelessness as death in the material, uh, like worldly sense. And it would seem like in order to, uh, uh, it almost seems like it, it, one ought to just keep the sort of edge of longing visible, but just constantly, just a little far out of reach, right? If one wants to not be tormented by emptiness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, because yeah, it's a it's a it's a really good question. It's a really complicated question. It's actually something that I thought about a lot as I um as I wrote my dissertation actually. Um and it's difficult to give an answer. Many people, I mean, many different uh, thinkers in different traditions, religious traditions, philosophical traditions, have different ways of approaching this question. In uh, uh, the context of South Asian, uh, broadly speaking, South Asian uh, uh, religion and uh, and philosophy, there's a tendency to be um, suspicious of desire, to view it as I mean, there's also a strong tradition of suspicion of desire in um, in Christian uh, in Christian thought, but in in South Asian in in Hindu and Buddhist uh, thought, there is I wouldn't say suspicion is not the right word, but a certain uh, uh, there's this idea that that desire is is harmful, that uh, that it um, it uh, submerges the individual in the world from which the individual actually needs to be liberated. Um, and of course, this is like rooted in a in a worldview about you know rebirth and uh, karma that uh, that is that is very you know that is culturally specific and that I don't know that people would uh, would necessarily hold such views. Many people, um, at least uh, uh, today. But for me, I would say that 
desire is very important. I think of the visions of desirelessness that you get in different religious traditions, in the Abrahamic traditions, in Christianity and Islam, you have this idea of heaven as a place where there can be no desire because there's a kind of there's a kind of endless fulfillment, right? There's there is only one cannot be one is not desiring because one is always in the state of satisfaction. It's this kind of endless uh uh, this endless fulfillment and there is some such idea of like some such some similar kind of idea in uh, in in like say the buddhist idea of nirvana um but or in you know in various like hindu ideas of whatever liberation or moksha or whatever um but in all these cases there's this kind of like um these pictures of of desireless fulfillment um are are pictures that are very static. They they don't involve movement. One doesn't need to move because one has everything one needs. There's a kind of um, fixity. There's a kind of uh, to, to, to these images of of heaven, to these images of fulfillment. Whereas for me, I guess I tend to think of life in terms of movement, uh, in terms of uh, of uh, yeah, of of activity and. Uh, I, I tend to think of of human life, of animal life, as 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 requiring movement of not just physical movement of any of various kinds. The movement basically from from needing something to to um, to obtaining it, uh, whether that's uh, food and water, or shelter, or recognition, uh, or or sex or love. So so for me, I, I guess I think of desire. If you think of desire as 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 what leads to movement or if you think of movement as the central i guess I mean, there's this question of whether we think of rest or movement as the kind of basic position of life and i think uh, in uh, in different philosophical traditions there tends to be this uh privileging of stillness whereas so we are still but being in the world forces us to move because we become worldly creatures and needy creatures and that we might contrast that with an idea of humans or human life or animal life as as being in constant movement and evolution and change um and on this way of thinking of things rest or stillness or fulfillment are not eternal states but rather brief moments in life little uh, moments or periods of stillness or rest where we have everything we we need or where we're momentarily fulfilled uh like when we get rest after uh, a, a, a fatiguing day, or when we um, when we've eaten a meal uh, after going hungry for some time. So I tend to think of yeah, I tend to think of desire and movement is very uh, very important to to flourishing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thanks, thanks for that that answer. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just had a. A couple of concluding questions. So I'm given to understand that you somewhat drew inspiration for like structure of the novel from Thomas Bernard's Extinction. What shaped that thought and like how did you find that panning out? So of course it it seems, so it's it's quite striking, you know, when you think about it, just the rhythm of the prose really comes forth in like this circular uh, but building up kind of Bernardian rant except that it's outward oriented right instead of like this relentless uh, battering of uh, like individuality almost that bernard employs it in 
there's that aspect. And then, of course, this referential way of the, a lot of these descriptions are mediated through the voice of the narrator, as in as in Bernard. So I'm just curious, you know, what what shaped the, the thought? To what extent did you know? Did you, did you draw inspiration from from the from extinction? Um, well, I did. Yeah, that's such a it's such an interesting question to think about. Um, I suppose what I was interested in, uh, or what I was most um, impressed by in in extinction, or in a lot of burnout texts, is this sustained devotion to a single consciousness, right? To the point, uh, as you say, where it becomes almost claustrophobic, and it becomes especially claustrophobic because the consciousnesses that he's interested in are often paranoid. They're often frustrated. They're often full of rage and they're often trapped in small spaces where they have to, in rooms where they pace up and down. Um, And I was really interested in this kind of uncompromising devotion to a single consciousness. And, you know, he, like part of, part of how he does that is by using very very few paragraph breaks right and very few sentence breaks also they're long sentences that kind of flow into one another um there's a lot of clauses and sub clauses and um very few paragraph breaks you get this sense of an uninterrupted mind and this was what i was really impressed with and i wanted to like uh, try to see if i could do the same uh i mean i think of uh, the books I write uh, now, I mean, I'm still a young writer and I guess I learned to write writing books, uh, writing my, you know, I, I you know, because I, I, I didn't study writing formally. So I, I tend to think of the writing I do also as a kind of education or as a kind of apprenticeship. So with this second novel, what I want, I wanted to be able to create the kind of text Bernard does, a text in which we pay total con- attention to a single consciousness and in which the world, the outside world impinges very little in which there's very little interruption or disturbance from the outside world. So I wanted to see if I could make a book out of simply the drama of a mind alone. And um, the text is very different, of course, from Bernard's because uh, his texts are full of paranoia and anger uh, and this kind of like relentlessness. Um, Whereas this text, I think, is what I was trying to do is something much more, uh, much easier to inhabit something that a certain uh, kind of gentle and quiet and generous solitude uh, that's that's kind of large enough to to incorporate um, all of the things that that the, that the, that the character wants to think about um, and so I also employed uh, I did a lot of I used a lot of I guess uh, strategies that Bernard uh, used in in his novel the the um, uh, certain kind of stinginess with paragraph breaks and with sentence breaks uh, i use full stops less than a lot of writers um uh, dialogue is is not separated and not presented directly to the reader but is presented again through the consciousness of the character um and um yeah, and I and I you know and I couldn't I didn't succeed in in creating a text in a, in creating an individual that was totally isolated from the world, totally cut off, hermetically sealed in a room, and so the the character at some point I decided the character needs to make a journey and needs to be in the world, but even his being in the world is a kind of uh, spectatorship rather than a participation. 
Um, but I, I would say these are the kind of the, the main ways in which I was inspired by the text. And then there's obviously also the, the plot similarities with Extinction, right? Because Extinction also is, is divided into two parts. The first is he receives news of death. And the second part is him at the funeral. And so the same, those two parts are the first and third part of, of my novel. There's a third part of that, that consists of the journey, the train journey, um, to the to the to the cemetery in the northeast but um but so i i was yeah so th- that was kind of simply a kind of gesture of acknowledgement i would say mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i thought it was really interesting how you sort of employed some of the same uh, uh like techniques in a completely different mode and you know not at all inward looking but very like the gaze was outward in a sense right yeah <laughs> right so Great. Uh, I think I, that brings me to my final question. I was going to ask you, what are you reading now? Um, what am I reading now? Right now, I'm reading a novel called um, Body Vassal. It's a Tamil novel. Um, I can't remember when it was written. I think in the 30s or the 40s. But it's um, it's basically about um, uh, you know Jali Kattu, uh, which is this uh, which is this kind of rural Tamil Nadu. Um, kind of pastime that involves uh, you know like taming taming a taming a, a wild and enraged bull within a fixed uh, circumscribed space there's a movie a tamil movie coming out about uh, based on the book and i and it's and it's a, it's, it's a kind of there were a lot of these protests around jallikattu uh, as the center was considering making it illegal a few years ago and so i i thought i'd, I'd i thought i'd read the book in in kind of preparation for the film and I know you said that, you know, you don't like talking about uh, the novel that you're writing, but is there any kind of like the current thematic um, uh, areas you're exploring philosophically? I am working on a, yeah, on a third novel. This one is kind of uh, set in the diaspora, the Tamil diaspora in uh, in New York and Toronto and Paris um, and maybe in South India. I don't know. but. Um, but it it is again kind of related to the to the war to its to its repercussions or to its afterlife. But if you can think of the first novel as taking place at Ground Zero and the second second novel taking place seven years later and in another part of the island and the kind of psychological repercussions on that of that event on a kind of Tamil who grew up elsewhere in the country. Then the third novel is kind of dealing with the kind of psychological repercussions of the war across continents in the diaspora. So it's it's even more removed from the from the war and from the island, but it's still dealing very much with, I guess, the afterlife of 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 violence in the island. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you so much, Anuk. Thank you. Uh, thank you for doing it. And thank you for all the lovely questions. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.